but there's this famous story about the Sex Pistols first trip to the UK where they played a show in Manchester to like three dozen people. And of those three dozen people, basically everyone in the audience went out and started a band that became successful. So Marcy was in the audience. <laughs> the guys from the Buzzcocks <laughs> were in the audience. The dudes from Joy Division, literally the guy who started both Joy Division and New Order went and bought his first guitar the day after the show. It was a tight knit community. And that kind of supposedly that one little show spawned a lot of stuff. It was a super spreader event. Exactly. <laughs> it, of course it was. They all looked at it and they're like, oh, you can suck at your instrument and still be in a band. (laughs) And look, these guys are getting laid after the show. Welcome to 1001 Album Complaints, the podcast where four lifelong friends, lifelong musicians, music appreciators, and of course critics get together and discuss albums from the 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die list, kicking some to the curb, lauding some even higher by, by marking, anointing them with our stamp and uh, generally talking about nerdy musical things. So thanks for joining us. I am Rob, and here with us today we have... Tom. I'm Adam. And Phil. Awesome. Glad to have everybody in the studio today. Today we're going to talk about, as as mentioned on last week's podcast, today we're going to talk about (laughs) The Smiths, The Queen is Dead. I have a feeling this is going to be a controversial one based on the text strings that have already <laughs> whatever gave you that blown clearly. about. And I, I, I'll, I'll just say off the bat, I understand why. I think it's an easy record uh, to dislike, and as much as it's an easy record to like, so I'm excited to get into it. But maybe just a, uh, first, a little bit of background. So the Smiths are a very well-known uh, British band. They're from Manchester. They were putting out records in the 80s, and The Queen is Dead is their third official release of of a total of four, and widely considered to be their best uh, record. They broke up not too long after this record came out. They put one record out kind of right after this and broke up and truly, truly hate each other. There's never been the possibility of a reunion on the books, and I do like something about bands that just call it quits and really never look back, so bravo to them. So this was originally released in June of 1986. Didn't really crack uh, the UK charts. It was favorably reviewed. We can talk about some of those reviews. But the Smiths in general, you have to understand, were a band who weren't really... They didn't have a ton of commercial success when they were around, but they attracted kind of a devoted cult following uh, through their time. Part of that is their singer, Morrissey, having a rather unusual voice, kind of an unusual approach to songwriting being sort of sassy in his uh, approach to those things. And so a lot of people, especially teenagers, you could argue that the 80s is sort of a time of teenage angst in particular, are really, really love and are devoted to the Smiths. So they have, they have a lot of that, but they never really achieved commercial success. And there's, we can argue about why. They hail from Manchester, which I thought as a little background, it's a very musical city in, in the UK. It's kind of considered the second city of the UK. Lots of great bands have come out of there. The Bee Gees, Herman's Hermits, 
uh, Joy Division, Oasis. It's sort of, even though it's maybe like the fifth largest city in the UK, it's considered the second to London easily in terms of sort of the arts and especially the musical scene there. So, uh, but that said, it is kind of a, a working class city, right? And so there's always that chip on your shoulder. We're not London kind of vibe to what's going on there. Uh, it's a, was it, it was one of the first industrialized cities, uh, I think maybe even in the world, but certainly in the UK. And so a lot of working class folks uh, making sense of things. So I guess let's just get into it by asking what, I, I'm almost afraid to ask, what were people's first uh, impressions of, <laughs> of the record? Dismiss the Queen is Dead. Tom, I believe this one goes to you. Yeah, man, I tried. I really did try. Like, I, I tried to get into the album. Um, I hated it. I really don't like it at all. I find very little redeeming about it. Um, I think that uh, there is... I was somewhat shocked when I learned that this was their third album. It sounds unprofessional. It's, like, terribly mixed. There are, like, some obvious, like, mistakes that they should have fixed. And um, I, I don't... It didn't seem to me to be the work of like an established band that has been in the studio many times before. I also was like, oh, this, the lyrics are the lyrics of like an angsty teenager, like you said. But then it's like, oh, Morris, he's like 26 years old. Like that, it's a little bit less of a <laughs> excuse think about that. that he's, <laughs> yeah, he's given these sort of angsty teenage kind of vibes and like, playing to his, his audience i guess and i am you know i'm an angsty adult but i'm not an angsty teenager anymore i'm angsty about different things though i liked the instrumentals on the album i actually thought that the bass had a really good tone i liked the bass the guitar was i thought good and interesting guitar but the mixing was so inconsistent there were songs where i couldn't even hear the guitar at all it's like Certain songs, they like had the bass cranked way high. You could hear the bass really well. Certain songs, they had Morrissey cranked way high. And you could just hear Morrissey. And that kind of like really inconsistent treatment throughout the album kept bringing me out of it. It's like, you know, when you see like, um, what's that? Uh, like the John Mulaney joke where he's like watching a, you know, an, a, an episode of Law and Order. And there's like a lineup and it's like Dean Kane. <laughs> you know, Superman is in the lineup and it like takes you out of it immediately. We're just like, Oh, it's Dean Kane. Like right. clearly it's him. That's the guy. Um, and it, that like takes you out of the moment. And like, I found myself being taken out of the moment frequently by just these things that were again, I, I was hard to get over. And yes, I'm, I was being uncharitable to it from the beginning because I cannot stand Morrissey, his entire persona, his entire delivery. I don't like any of it, but, um, I also do think that the focus was more on that than it was on the, the parts that I liked, which was like the, some of the instrumentation of the song structure I thought were really good, but they just don't give a chance to shine because of the way they're presented. So that's my take. <laughs> All right. So I, uh, Rob, you, you described Morrissey's vocal style as unusual. And I would say that that's accurate in the same way that I am unusual at basketball, tennis, <laughs> skateboarding, dubstep break dancing <laughs> in that I am bad at it and shouldn't do it. So to Tom's point about constantly bringing you out. So went in to the week and, and the album trying to be open-minded. I, I, I really didn't know much of the whole um, Morrissey, uh, his backstory and he's insufferable and all that. Right. Like I, I didn't know that, which was good for me going into the album. So 
right off the bat listening to it, I had such a hard time getting past his pitch problems I can, and the consistent pitch problems. Like first or second song, I thought, okay, well, maybe it was a bad a bad run or whatever. But then the finished the album, and I thought, okay, well, he sings pitchy. So maybe it was just this album. So then I went back to Meet His Murderer, and I listened to a few of those, and I'm like, oh, this might just be the way he sings, in air quotes. Uh, so that kind of... Uh, set me on a course for this album where I, I really struggled to be uh, to listen to it, you know, a, as a whole. Uh, to Tom's point, great, uh, great musicianship all around, right? Like I, I like the guitar work. Song structures were good. The, the music was good. I just had such a hard time getting past his voice. So that kind of that was a. But but having said that, I'm also still in crisis because I don't know yet and i'm looking forward to the to the conversation here of whether or not i think this should be on the list because i want to make sure i i'm being uh fair right does one aspect of the music throw it all down the drain so we'll we'll see as we continue yeah, the discussion that's interesting i i definitely you know picking up on a lot of the things you guys said i mean i think that's really interesting feedback i didn't really consider the mix that you mentioned tom um but I, but I, I do think that that's maybe true. Um, I didn't, it didn't sort of strike me at the time. I found this record to be very, um, well, first of all, I had a very low expectation, right? Like I'm sort of the opposite of what you're saying, Adam. Most of what I know of Morrissey um, is basically like his solo song on the craft soundtrack and basically just his persona. Uh, you know, his insufferable persona. So obviously, like, when I listened to this record, I was familiar with it. I'd been exposed to it, but I didn't really know it. And I, and I thought it was really interesting just song to song. Like, like honestly, Rob, you said, like, I think you opened with, like, what was your first impression? My first impression was, oh, no. Because it starts with, like, 10 or 12 seconds of, like... <laughs> you know, I don't even know what to call that um, on The Queen is Dead, you know, some kind of, I don't know, English folk song. But then, like, the drums rip in. I thought it had a really interesting, like, sort of early 90s, or early 80s, uh, mid-80s, like, drum-forward sound. I think a lot, of, and I even thought, like, a lot of the records that maybe I grew up listening to, a lot of bands' first records, like 10 and, and, and Core, and even that first Dave Matthews record, like, they sort of had this like over compressed, over close mic, every drum has reverb on it sound that I thought was like oddly downstream from this. I thought the chords were really cool. It was the other thing that stood, stood out to me with like the Queen is Dead. I thought like, oh man, there's weird chromatic motion in the chords and like they're all major chords, which sort of gave me like an odd Nirvana vibe. Marcy's voice is quirky, to say the least. But I felt like if I listened to it a hundred times, like it might, it might neutral milkhead tell me, right? Like I might fall deeply in love with the sound of his voice. Um, now that said, you know, there are songs like, frankly, Mr. Shankly uh, was a standout of one that I just don't see how I would ever get over that. There were other ones late in the record. I don't need to. <laughs> uh, the bass sound on frankly, Mr. Shankly is fantastic. It really, it's yeah. fat and round and really good. Like Johnny Marr, was the that's the name Johnny Marr, the guitarist, right? That's correct, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can see why he and Morrissey hated each other because I feel like 
every song where like Morrissey's voice is way up in the mix, the guitar is way down. And I could see it just being like, maybe like Morrissey went in later on in a mixing session. It was just like, just turn that guitar down I'm, and turn my Right. My I'm not this up. focus of attention. Yeah. <laughs> Let's fix this. I'm not even putting a negative, like, oh, I'm not the focus of attention. So therefore I have to do this. I'm more just saying that like, he drowns out Johnny Morris contribution on this album a lot. I think. Have you, Yes, I want, I want to tell you guys kind of where I'm at, but I want to direct your attention to, have you looked at any of the band photos of the Smiths? There's particularly this, this famous one with Morrissey sort of up front, and there's another guy in the band kind of looking confident, and there's a third guy in the band kind of looking confident, and there's one little squirrely dude all the way in the back, kind of looks like our friend, our friend's brother, Steve. And it took me a long time to realize, oh, that's Johnny Marr. He's the guy way in the back, he's not in control of the band, right? He is the musical presence. He wrote all the songs and then Marcy is the lyrics writer. And so all the musicianship and sort of the songwriting. And I, I want to say the melody, although I'm never sure how to write, read those liner notes because it always just says music by Johnny Marr, lyrics by Marcy. Mm-hmm. But we can imagine that he may have also written those melodies. But I think that's a fair assessment that he was definitely not in control of the band that Marcy quickly took center stage he's a little heart throbby as you can imagine kind of old school hold on rob is this is this the picture that you're talking about here you can click on this yes that's okay the one. yes dude he looks like um the guy who played frito in the godfather exactly <laughs> just yeah, kind of totally. squirrely weaselly dude yeah totally totally and I just remember I, I knew someone in directly in post college who had that as a poster or something from that photo shoot as a poster on their on their wall. And it was that was kind of my first introduction to the Smiths back then in my 20s. And I just remember staring at that and wondering and hearing about that. It was Marcy and Marr. I know who Marcy was. I didn't know who Johnny Marr was. I assumed that he was the other guy in the front of this picture. It's a reasonable assumption. Right. But then later kind of having this realization that it was the dude all the way in the back. So. Sounds like I'm the only person that had already spent a fair amount of time with this record. I listened to it in my 20s a good number of times, kind of got acquainted with it, got, let's say, over the hump of Marcy's quirky voice. I'll start there. Well, actually, I'll start with my first impressions on listening to it again. I, I also kind of had low expectations just after talking about it with you guys, because I think of it as the kind of record that is very personal and emo, you know, honestly. Mm-hmm. And so not necessarily what you, what I would ever have called cool. Uh, you know, that, that wouldn't, that, that's not a word I would have associated with it. You know, that said, I thought when the queen is dead kicked in, I was like, Oh, this actually rocks. This is, it still sounds fairly modern. And I was sort of happy about that. Right. Then on deeper listen, I also, this is something I never noticed in my twenties when I kind of had my time with it before was those sort of mixing and production inconsistencies. Partly that was because, so I, I also agree with, with that point. But partially that was because I was like researching what people had to say about these songs. And there's a lot of fanship out there and famous other musicians. Just say what you will. This record certainly influenced a lot of people and a lot of famous musicians in that next kind of wave of even indie rock into America and things like that. You know, but people would mention like, oh, the bass work on Queen is Dead. And I'd be like, I can barely hear the bass or, you know, and they're talking about, oh, the cool production choice on some girls are bigger than others. And I'm like, that, I always thought that was a mistake, like where it's like a door closes <laughs> and then it opens again. I was like, I always wondered about that. And I saw this interview with the engineer proudly proclaiming that it was an innovative decision. I'm like, no, it was it was not. It was a, it it was like a, a screw up. It was a bad decision and you should yeah. just own it. So, yeah, I I'll just say right off the bat. I, so I like it. I think it's great. I think it's 
tuneful. I mean, very melodic. I like the melodies on on the songs a lot. I like the guitar work a lot. I think Johnny Marr is an interesting, subtly innovative guitar player. He's more of a rhythm guitar player, especially on this record. But I think what he what he does with that rhythm guitar is is, is reasonably innovative. And I just think Morrissey is unique. I can't exactly deny that he has a super warbly, strange you know voice. I so I'm, I guess I'm not going to deny that he's pitchy. But I have to be honest, it just doesn't bother me at all, like not even a little bit. And I think okay. there's lots of other singers who have those similar qualities. Phil brought up Jeff Magnum from Neutral Milk Hotel, I think is a good example. Uh, I thought a little oh, okay. bit. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I got I got I got to refute that because the problem I have with Morrissey is he seems like he's never willing to like push hard for a note. <laughs> he's kind of always sort of slinking into it. And <laughs> yeah. Sure. Say what you will about the voice of uh, Jeff Mangum. Like he goes for notes. He really is pushing it. And he doesn't have like a beautiful timbre to his voice. Yeah. But I would not say that he is like a very that he's like an imprecise singer. That is the I think it's the imprecision is my I, I saw uh I saw Mangum once and he did O'Comley and he can't hit that note. He doesn't hit it on a record, he can't hit it live. It's is just, it a high? Is it a high note? Yeah, because I, that's fine. Note. Like, I I I get it's a high that belt too. <laughs> it, right, yeah. and I get that that not all singers are perfect. Like, you go back and you listen to the Jimi Hendrix experience, right? Like he like the the tone of his voice. It was decent. I mean, he wasn't one hundred percent one hundred percent of the time, but a majority of the time, he was hitting the notes on pitch. Even if he was and chewing the, gum, right. <laughs> <laughs> If six was nine, is that what the one we're going to do the whole track? But yeah, my, my problem is it's just consistently out. And again, I, you know, you guys joked that like my, my ear or whatever, but I have a really hard time. And, and that's just something I, I I have an actual question here because, because there were, there was a style of song where I felt like Morrissey's voice really shined. And that was the slower one specifically. I know it's over. And never had no one ever were the two that like, I mean, maybe there are other slow jams like later on the record that I'm, you know, I wasn't paying attention to the track list or something, but like, I'm curious, like, is it the faster ones where, where like he has to hit more notes or is it now it's even on the really slow one, the, I know it's over. There are a uh-huh. couple seconds in there sure. where uh, it might even be the first time he says, I know it's over, it's over, it's over. And it's, it's gotta be at least 40 to 50 cents off of what the note should be, which I also have a theory as to why there's no backing vocals or other harmonies <laughs> on this album too, because it is remarkably difficult to try to harmonize to somebody who's not mm-hmm. on pitch. Well, and the yeah, backing vocals that are on there, are like weirdly affected and pitched. So there's no there's right, no I, clean backups. I think they are Morrissey with the tape sped up. That's my understanding. Mm. Yeah, so I think he is literally the only voice on the record. Listen, I, I partially understand what you're saying, but I do think it's done very purposefully. And I think his persona is very much, he thinks of himself as sort of a modern day Oscar Wilde, someone who's in repose on a divan and spewing wit you know, to the salon, like that's his, that's part, that's part of his deal. But I just have to be, I just have to be clear. It doesn't bother me in the least. I think he sounds great on, I know it's over. I think that song is a great example of him doing, and we should also say he's, I don't, I don't know exactly what his range is. I don't think he has a huge range. I think we can acknowledge that, but he's like a, 
don't know if he's a baritone or kind of a low tenor or something, but he's some low range set. Anyway, I think that's a great example of a song where he is clearly improving and find his, his way through it, but also has a good sense of withholding the note that you clearly want to happen. Like there's tension in that performance. And I think that's what part of what makes it good. Maybe if I had listened to this when I was younger, like, and I'm not, Rob, I'm not making assumptions about how you were first introduced to this album when I say this, because I think it actually might be accurate, but this seems like the album that that quirky girl that you're crushing on in your mid twenties, when she's like 26 introduces you to, and you like end up having like a, a short, but uh, you know, very uh, intense relationship with her where, you know, you're listening to this album while you're having like, you know, carefree mid 20 sex. And then like, it gets in your head of like, Oh, this is so great. I love this. I don't know if that was your experience. This seems like the thing that like the manic pixie dream girl would introduce yeah. you to when you're casting about for you. You're not crazy this. far off, but I do want to correct. <laughs> I want to correct the story by at least saying that when this was first introduced to me in that, in that little story that you just, that arc of a story you just laid out there, I didn't like it. I, I acknowledge that it was hard to like at first. I acknowledge that Marcy, the person, had a lot of baggage. He is an insufferable prick. And, you know, and then just I think the songs were a little uh, less accessible, right? But that over time, I truly have come to like them. And so when, when looking back on it, I wasn't thinking nostalgia. I'm just being honest. I wasn't, it wasn't like a nostalgia thing. I, I, was, I was thinking that that could have been it, but I was like checking myself for that. I really don't think that's it. I think these melodies, they got stuck in my head really easily. I found myself humming along to a lot of them. I'm a big melody person, so that's ultimately what it is. I think a lot of these melodies are, are extremely memorable. I just, I, the melodies are so like, I can't even identify the melody sometimes because he's warbling through it so much. But they're kind of that romantic, emotional melody thing that I, again, I get why it's not cool, but I, I just like it. The, the thing we haven't, the point we haven't touched on too, and I understand it takes a certain, maybe an age range or a sense of humor, but I think the record is funny. I think he's funny. He's got a kind of gay man sassiness, if I can say, although he's never pinned himself to one sexuality, but he's kind of coming from that sort of persona. And it's funny to me to hear lyrics about bludgeoning someone in their bed, like in a sarcastic right. tone. Or, and then I'm sure we're going to get deeper into the, the personage that is Morrissey, who I agree is extremely unlikable, and I think his bandmates and various people that have run across him in his life would agree. However, I've done a little psych eval on him. He's he is insufferable and self-absorbed, certainly, but he is also extremely self-loathing and is aware of his crazy persecution complex. And so you get, I think, funny self-aware lyrics of "Now I know how Joan of Arc felt." Like, it's clearly a dig at himself about how ridiculous he's being. He can't stop being ridiculous. It, it's, it's, it's funny you bring that line up, Rob. And I'm sorry to cut you off, but uh, that I, I was just driving down, the like, driving down the street the first time I listened to this record. And I must have zoned out, you know, for a while. And I sort of snapped back into it with him saying the thing about Joan of Arc. And I thought what the hell is happening here? Like, how did we get here? I missed something. Like, like when you're reading a book and you sort of just like space for a page or two, and then something important happens, yeah. and you're like, wait a second, how did I get here? 
I just, to me, this is a, it's sort of a must listen for would-be smart alecky songwriters. Even if you're not going to go at it from this perspective, I've always liked cleverness in songs. And I think there's undeniable cleverness and kind of dark humor within this. Are you referring to the lines like, some girls' mothers are bigger than other girls' mothers? I love that line. I, <laughs> I love that, that it song makes so no much. sense. I love it. That's, the, that's most of the song. Like, I know it is. There's only like four other lines in the song that aren't those lines. <laughs> I don't get it. Okay. Uh, he talks. He talks about. He talks about romanticizing being hit by a double decker bus. Yeah. Dying in a car crash. You know, he tells the guy off, and frankly, make Mr. Shankly, which is about the record executive, that he writes terrible poetry, and he's a flatulent pain in the ass. I just. I think it's. Maybe I'm not laughing out loud at this point in my life from this kind, this brand of cleverness, but I've always appreciated this brand of cleverness. And I just, I personally draw a pretty easy line from this kind of songwriting to other songwriters I, I really do admire, like Stephen Merritt of the Magnetic Fields, or I don't know, even maybe contemporaries of the Smiths, like Violent Femmes, or They Might Be Giants, or other people who, who, play in those waters basically it, it, it's definitely interesting you said magnetic fields because that was absolutely the main artist right like that was the main artist that i was immediately like oh aha you know like there were there were like i said there were elements of the way the drums were mixed specifically on the queen is dead and i think boy with a thorn in his side Two of the very, very drum-forward mixes. It sort of gave me weird insight into, I think, a lot of, like, early 90s production choices um, that were, you know, probably because this record was hip and this sort of drum style. Again, things about U2 that I also sort of realized, like, oh, okay, there's a thread here that, like, this is bigger than just, you know, Bono mouthing off. Um, but Magnetic Field, Stephen Merritt was the big one. And I was like, oh. This is like St Stephen Merritt is like the Smiths unplugged, right? Like a bit. Listen, my, my, my overarching point is that Morrissey is a troll in the pre-internet era and in the post-internet era. And so I don't, that doesn't mean I like him. I don't like trolls. I don't like troll culture. But I do think he was a bit of an innovator when it came to some aspects of that. He's clearly, and even his public persona, he is very much, he's a fame whore and he's very open about that. I'd rather be famous than righteous or holy is one of the lines too. Mm -hmm. And so he's someone that was very clear about constantly courting controversy and talking crap in the lyrics and then acting persecuted about it. It's, it's ridiculous. It doesn't make me want to have a beer with this guy, but yeah, I, mean, I do think it's a persona. You're describing like the eighties version of the Kardashians, basically. Like, uh, I am going to get famous. I want to do, I'll do anything to get famous. And then once I get famous, I'll be, I'll stay famous for my persona and less for my, well, they don't have any creative output, but you know what I mean? Like, and I don't, I don't find a lot of, a lot to recommend that. As, as we're going down this, this list, I, I immediately thought of Fred Durst as somebody who sort of built a career on just like stoking, stoking a certain type of. The Limp Biscuit guy? Are you yes. willing to agree that Marcy has a better <laughs> voice than Fred Durst? Yes, yes. Oh, well, I can. I don't know about that. Wait, I, I you're talking about flat Fred, over there. <laughs> about Fred Durst, the director of the movie The Fanatic, of course. That's the Fred Durst you're referring to. 
I just think there was something with that red hat and the way he was always like in people's faces and just like and doing it all for the nookie. Yeah, exactly, exactly. (laughs) Even the songs were like rubbing it in your face, right? It was like yeah, it was like a commercial for itself sort of thing, right? When I oh sorry, go ahead. No, I was gonna say so I thinking about. Rob, you're saying, right, the impetus of this style, that kind of self-loathing, you know, the, the, the lyrical nature of the Smiths may have been the, the impetus for me saying that when I listen to this album, aside from the, the title track and maybe one of the other harder driving tracks, I was thinking, pretty sure I saw a shitty acoustic band in Borders Books and Music playing all of this stuff in 1996. You know what I mean? Where it just, to me, it was just like, okay, yeah, you know, they're singing about, you know, don't kill animals for fur, and it's a girl with a bad voice and an acoustic guitar playing the same thing. You know, that's that's where my head went. Now, not disparaging that perhaps this was the, the invention of that style. So I'm trying to keep that in mind as I vacillate. <laughs> back and forth on this listen i don't i understand we're in a little bit of an adversarial position here we and ultimately we can agree to disagree because i'm i feel more strongly that i like the record and i'm going to keep listening to it so nothing you guys can say is going to change that oh of course but i I will say this i hate that kind of music just as much as anyone on this call i assure you (laughs) i just don't think that's what this music is i do think it's emotional i don't think Mm -hmm. it's the kind of music i'll probably roll my windows up at the traffic light in other words (laughs) But that doesn't mean I don't like it, and I doesn't, you know, I think it has value, and I think there's good writing behind it. I just do. I, you know, it's funny because I, I definitely thought of the Violent Femmes listening to this album, but the, I love the first Violent Femmes album, the self-titled album from '83, three years before this album came out. So I think that uh, you know they did that in a way that was, I think more clever and funnier and less annoying and maybe it's a british first american thing which i just also ah. just want to bring up that like birmingham is like a working class like town manchester and like manchester sorry manchester yeah birmingham is the one that they i think they did they name drop birmingham in the uh in the like the opening uh oh um, maybe yeah little sample um yeah manchester whatever manchester morris you probably got the piss beaten out of him he all did. the time he is basically like and i don't truck with these people at all but he is like the definition of what those like proud boys would prefer to was like a soy boy like you know ah, he's right. like i'm celibate i don't eat animals and i'm like super emotional and i wear tight clothing and i like talk about all the <laughs> slings and arrows of my life and yes. like i don't agree with those guys on much but i do agree with them about the fact that i don't particularly like people like that wait let's so let, let's get into that for one second and first of all I would I like the Violent Femmes record better, but I did think of the Violent Femmes record. I think they are somewhat of a piece. And but if, yeah, if you made me choose between them, I'd choose the Violent Femmes record. It might be the American thing. Uh, what a, you hear a lot of people saying, and what I think is can be hard for us to grasp, is how insanely English or British these guys are. I think there is something cultural about it, and they certainly were bigger in, in Britain than they were in the UK. But speaking of the soy boy comment. I do think there's a very purposeful anti-macho rock star approach here. You're right. Marcy was definitely an outcast his entire life. He definitely got beat up in high school. If he's not, if he doesn't actually identify as gay, 
I, I believe over, you know, he, he refused to ever pigeonhole his sexuality while the Smiths were going on. And he at some point had a relationship with a man and later had a relationship with a woman, whatever. And he was celibate when the band was going on, like you said. But he was certainly an outcast. One of the things I thought, you know, like, and he's, he's really trying to go against a little of that. They came out in the early 80s. Purposely go against that kind of the only version of what a lead singer can be is this hyper macho sexualized. If you, I'm trying not to say that it's another version of what a gay man lead singer can be without actually saying, because I know Marcy doesn't necessarily identify that way. But even Freddie Mercury was putting forward a very macho version of what sure. that is. And right. I think Marcy went this other direction. And I'm just saying he did it purposely. We can, you can like it or not. Sure. But that was, that was part of it. That's interesting, too, on, on the, the timing, right? So 81, 82, as you're saying, that they're touring, starting up, right? I think their first record came out in 82, yeah. Okay. And you look across the pond of the U.S. and who's big, right? Motley Crue, Def Leppard, Poison. Now, they might not be super macho, but they're hyper-sexualized, male-fronted bands where everything is phallic, you yeah. know, uh, just the, the entire, uh, their whole shtick well, is just sex, right? And, and interestingly, they, they were listening to the same guys, because that's coming off a of glam rock. Marcy was super into Bowie and T-Rex. They were, okay. you know, they, they okay. come from the same place, but they took it in a different direction. But anyway, continue. Yeah, right, right. Okay, okay. So yeah, it, it was. I think it was. A, it was a different way to go, and I just think it presented something. I mean, part of the reason it was marketable ultimately is because it wasn't out there in the market already. Another comment I had, perhaps you will disagree, is that the fact that this band was just a more traditional rock band at a time when everything was going synth and new wave, or maybe even stuck in punk. Clearly, there was a. You know, there's a lot of, there's a plethora of different kinds of music on, you know, the Nightfly was popular in 1982, as we sure. learned last week as well. But it was a little anti where the trends were at the time. And that's one of the reasons I think a lot of indie rock bands of the sort of 90s and 2000s draw a pretty clear line back to the Smiths, because that was an example of a band that didn't have a ton of commercial success, worked that small but devoted fan base through touring and they, what they did this weird kind of marketing thing where they released a ton of singles that weren't on albums. They were trying to kind of like harken back to an earlier day, mixed success with that, but that's why they have a bunch of weird little singles collections. Still sounds like a really fun and cool idea. Which, which part, Phil? The part where you release a bunch of rogue singles. <laughs> but then you just have to keep compiling them and reselling them to your audience and people get annoyed by that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It worked for the Beatles and not really anybody else as far as I can tell. <laughs> right. Rob, to your point, though, about uh, how they kind of went against what was what was going on at the time, right? Like I was looking at uh, the songs being released at the time, and I, I think uh, Tears for Fears, they had uh, Everybody Wants to Rule the World may have come out within, you know, a month or two and that album. And I was thumbing through that album. And, yeah, it's very synth heavy, very – it's that 80s sound. Yeah. And this definitely does, while it sounds 80s, it's not that hyper-produced uh, uh, and very electronic, very digital-sounding thing. So I, I, I guess I, I can appreciate them kind of going against that trend. Well, and just to be clear, I mean, that, that's a little harder to get at when we look at the context of this record specifically, so we're getting a little off the track. I'm more referring to when they kind of came out initially, that they did have this guitar-driven sound at a time when, particularly 
in the UK, I think it was really, you know, this is Joy Division, New Order. It was okay. still coming off that kind of dance craze of the 70s thing. And they were even from the same city as Joy Division and New Order. So, um, yeah, that, that's kind of the point I'm making is they were they were trying to be innovative. And I think that's ultimately one of the reasons they inspired a lot of people to pick up a guitar. Dude, I'm actually looking at the reception right now. I'm a little shocked that that uh, the Queen is Dead was the number one single in the UK like two weeks after it was released. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, so they were big in the UK, but never really broke into the US. Yeah, I was trying to find out like what was the stuff that was like really popular around the time in the UK. Invisible Touch by Genesis. Oh, yeah. Well, so the, the song that was number one on the UK charts when this came out was a totally unnecessary cover of Spirit in the Sky, which I didn't know even existed. It's supposedly a new wave cover. Wait, that old 60s song? Yeah, yeah, yeah. By a band called Doctor wow. and the Medics, where they didn't <laughs> change the arrangement at all. It's like barely an update. And uh, in the US, just for context, is the Huey Lewis song, Stuck With You. Mm. I like that song. It's no, such a it's pleasant a little ditty. I wanted you to say a cool Huey Lewis song, uh, but yeah, you should, if it was, if yeah, this is it, know. then that would have been, yeah, would have been great. <laughs> oh, I'm going back to the future. Uh, I'm going back uh, to the future theme love. song. So here's uh, a here's a fun back little... to the future too. Back in time. <laughs> right. I mean, stuck with you sucks. I'm just listening to this now. This sucks. Here's a fun little yeah, musical tidbit true. too, because this is like a musical lore kind of thing. I guess if you don't like any of these bands, it's not going to mean anything. But there's this famous story about the Sex Pistols' first trip to the UK where they played a show in Manchester to like three dozen people. And of those three dozen people, basically everyone in the audience went out and started a band that became successful. So Marcy was in the audience. (laughs) The guys from the Buzzcocks were in the audience. The dudes from Joy Division, literally the guy who started both Joy Division and New Order, went and bought his first guitar the day after the show. Um, The Fall, those guys were in the audience like it was... It was a tight-knit community, and that kind of supposedly, that one little show spawned a lot of stuff. It was a super spreader event. Exactly. <laughs> it, of course it was. They all looked at it, and they're like, oh, you can suck at your instrument and still be in a band. Right. And look, these guys are getting laid right. after the show. Like, I could, I yeah. in three weeks, I could sound like this on the guitar. Fagan, Fagan came through last week, and I wasn't really sure <laughs> we could make that work. <laughs> Uh, he's screaming about being off by, uh, you know, an 87th feet or something like that. Oh, my God. Could you imagine Fagan and Morrissey getting together? Again, they'd murder each other. All right. So that would not go well. That would not go let's well. Talk, I'll just read a little bit from the reviews, and then we can, then we can get into uh, some, of these, some of these songs to continue this, this conversation. So the Rolling it was favorably reviewed, and it is con- very favorably thought of. So... Not that anyone on this call cares, but if you're against this album, you're not in the majority of rock critics. Rolling Stone said, Whereas previously Morrissey had sourly lectured his listeners that meat was murder, Queen is Dead, with The Queen is Dead, he's made one of the funniest rock albums ever. The shift came because he learned to express his self-loathing through mockery. Robert Christgau, famous grump, also enjoyed it. He said, after disliking their other albums instantly, I was confused enough by my instant attraction to table this one, especially since I had no stomach for the comparisons and I knew an investigation would entail. And indeed, I still can't stand the others. But here, Morrissey wears his wit on his sleeve, dishing the queen like Johnny Rotten never did, and kissing off a day job boss who's no Mr. Selleck. I don't, I don't know what he's talking about there. 
This makes it easier to go along with his moonier escapades, like when he reveals that looks and fame don't guarantee a good social life, which gives you time to notice the tunes, the guitars, and what he calls the backup munchkins. I assume he means the rest of the band. Wow, that's, that's a yeah, that's, hardcore that's diss from the rest rough. of the band there. Um, yeah, I don't find, I mean, like, great, Morrissey hates himself, like, join the club. That doesn't necessarily mean I like your music. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Because I thought I was crazy with the whole like pitch thing. And I know I keep going back to that. I'm sorry. It's, it's, it's probably getting annoying, but there was a, a reviewer from the Rolling Stone named JD Considine who did mention talking about this album. He talked about uh, Mars incisive visceral guitar work was great, but that Morrissey had a tendency to wander away from conventional notions of pitch often mangling the band's melodies in the process. <laughs> I love conventional, conventional yeah. notions of pitch. You mean on pitch, off pitch, good, yeah. but anyway. Fair, but that made me enough. feel good. Like I wasn't losing my mind, so I'll, I'll leave it but, there. But like, I know we're going to talk about next. We're going to talk about The Queen is Dead. I, I actually like the lyrics on that song a lot. I like the taking the piss of the royal family. Like, screw the royal family. They're terrible. Like, it's great. I like that. Yeah, let's... So- we're talking shit on the royal family now? I'm in. Yeah, let's I'm do not. it. Come on. Let's do this I'm thing. Team so, Megan, all right? So the working title for the album... I'm, fuck all of them. The working title for the album was Margaret on the Guillotine. And uh, <laughs> and uh, apparently the record company was like, yeah, you should probably change that. Or like the <laughs> UK Secret Service is going to get involved. Although I think he later released that as a song title. But yeah, so let's talk about The Queen is Dead. So you you asked or expressed some consternation about the the opening of the the record the the sort of sample yeah that is that's from an old uh that style of music is called music hall and it's it's, it's from a taken from an old film but basically I, I, this took me down a little wiki wormhole so I, i'll have to just relay it to you which is it's kind of similar to vaudeville in the u.s but it's this idea of like the post post classical pre-recorded music era where people would get together in beer halls and drink and want to sing along and so it's the like it's the old days of those like sing-along songs where someone would kind of stand in the middle didn't always have to be music they could be jugglers mm-hmm. or whatever but they'd stand in the middle and then have these like they'd sing the verses and then they'd expect everyone to jump in on the choruses and it is an interesting kind of musical tradition that i think leads to for instance the stuff that we used to like which is like irish traditional music like the wild rover or all for me grog stuff like that you know but this is a specific style of music a couple other kind of things and it's it's very English, right? In its in its approach. So Morrissey calls back to this style a couple times on the record, or I guess you could argue Johnny Marr does. That sample is one, but basically the other two songs that everyone more or less said they hated, with the kind of umpa beat, is a direct yep. reference to this older kind of style of like beer hall music. That's frankly Mr. Shankly and uh, Vicar and a Tutu, which to me is the throwaway song of the record. But I like frankly Mr. Shankly. Just frankly. Frankly, Mr. Shankly definitely stood out to me as having uh, interesting lyrics. Uh, but but it, it's interest, I, I find it interesting that you're saying it sort of harkens back to like some, what I'm understanding is like, a, yeah, the English version of vaudeville meets polka. Because yeah. I heard it as some, I heard it as some weird British misunderstanding of like American folk, right? Like the sort of like, you know, playing the bass line with your thumb, you know, finger style it, guitar. Um, 
So that makes sense that I'm just hearing it out of context. I said pre-recorded. What I meant is pre-jazz. Before jazz made things cool, this was what entertainment was like. If you didn't <laughs> yeah, want to go yeah, and okay. sit at the symphony and you wanted to drink and have a good time, you know, before there were jazz clubs, you would go into this. This was your option. Yeah, and yeah. there was there was American versions, there was French versions. Moulin Rouge is effectively a music hall in a in a French context, and people like Edith Piaf would be an example of singers who came out of that system, right? But it's particularly a big part of English culture. So I just wanted to reference that there's a there's some better songs written by a man named Paul McCartney that also make a lot of reference to this. One is When I'm 64, and one is Your Mother Should Know, Maxwell oh, yeah. Silverhammer. Yeah. Basically, these are all, in, you know, I got an article of Paul McCartney kind of saying, yeah, this is all like my tribute to this kind of music hall style. So I think it is a little bit hard as Americans to maybe recapture that. It's also a generational thing. But it was definitely a conscious choice to harken back to this this other style of music, which is definitely corny by today's standards. Anyway, on to the Queen is Dead, right? So, yeah, I guess initial thoughts. I feel like I'm I'm talking plenty. I like the song. I think it rocks. I think the lyrics are funny. And I think Marcy is self-aware. The Queen, he breaks into the palace and the Queen tells him he can't sing. So that yep. supports your theory, yeah. Adam. And he says, that's nothing. You should hear me play piano. I highlighted that on the lyric sheet. <laughs> it's, I think it's funny. It's just it's funny to me. Yeah. So I liked it. Thoughts? I like that he called out Charles, by the way. Oh, I like that as lot, a lot, too. By the way, talk yeah. about worst prediction ever. The Queen is dead 25 years later. She's still here giving you, uh, 35 years Jealous. later. Yeah, giving yeah. you the finger like, hey, Morrissey, I might actually outlive you. <laughs> yeah, the line is, Charles, don't you ever crave to appear on the front of the Daily Mail dressed in your mother's bridal veil? And then he says, no one talks about castration when you're tied to your mother's apron. Yeah. Yeah, he's Bo- I mean, it's pretty funny. I mean, you can't really get yeah, Good one, excellent. <laughs> Yeah, he's basically talking about breaking in and, and murdering a, a monarch with a with a, a wrench, you know? I think that's what he's talking about, a rusty spanner. Yeah. No, I listen, I I like I said, I like the taking the piss of the lyrics. There is one thing. Uh I wrote down the, the time stamp on this one too. There and Adam, you're probably gonna know exactly what I'm talking about. It's like right at a minute and 46 seconds in there where he's singing the line about, um, you know, some tough nine-year-old who peddles drugs. I swear to God, I swear. I never even knew what drugs were. There is such a, like his, his voice cracks into a sour <laughs> note on yes, there. I totally know what you're talking it's about. It's so bad. And like, <laughs> yeah. if you're telling me that he did that on purpose, that was a terrible choice to do that. It just, it's just like, <laughs> so I never that, even knew what drugs were. <laughs> and you could go back and fix it. It's the title track of the album. In that, in, in that, uh, <laughs> that, that interview that Rob was talking about, uh, the engineer said something that he loved it because Morrissey would come in and he, he didn't like to spend a lot of time in the studio. <laughs> so usually like one or two takes was his max because he didn't want to spend all day in there. I'm like, yeah, that checks out. That uh, absolutely rings true. He's so got uh, exactly what you're talking you about. You know, uh, romantic partners to not sleep with. Um, right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> at some point, at some point we'll talk about one of my favorite records called Teatro by Willie Nelson. They talk about how the, produ- the producer, Daniel Lenoir, talked about 
how he uh, also didn't want Willie Nelson doing too many takes. So he just told Willie to sit on the bus and smoke joints. <laughs> and Willie obliged. And then when the band was ready, he'd bring him in for a take or two. They'd Call do it, day, no right? rehearsal. And they send him back to the bus to smoke joints. They recorded the record in like 10 or 11 days. And Willie just sat on the bus smoking joints. So. Big interruption <laughs> from his normal routine. Right. <laughs> Big interruption from his normal routine. So I, I find that, yeah, I find that very believable that Marcy wasn't a great studio uh, workman. And we mentioned earlier the, the producer, this guy, Stephen Street, who was kind of friends with the band, basically got his break with the band. So it is right to say that this was early in his career as, a, as an engineer and a producer, kind of co-produced it with the Smiths. And so I think some of those questionable decisions need to be assigned to him. Although, worth mentioning, he did go on to have a, a bit of a career. He produced all of the Blur records. It's another English band that Americans mostly don't mm-hmm. know. And the Cranberries records that we all listened to in the 90s. I totally hear that. I totally hear the cranberries, especially in the way that there's a lot of like the jigging guitars right at the beginning, like like a big a big mm. in on like a chorus. Sometimes it's like an acoustic guitar and a heavily chorused balls clean electric guitar. Totally hear that that influence. So the one thing that I will say is uh, a bit different from uh, you know the 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 cranberries mixing. And uh, the the mixing for uh, the Smiths, like Dolores O'Riordan has a fantastic voice, but like sure. they don't push her out in front as far as Morrissey was pushed out in front in this mix. And I like you can. Yeah, I, I, I really had a hard time getting over, like I said, very inconsistent mixing on the album. Like I can't even hear the guitar on some of these tracks. Yeah, I, I think. And then some more context, maybe. I think it was it's right to say it was done in a very indie way. They didn't have a lot of support from their label they were on a very small label called rough trade which so the story of rough trade is that they were basically founded the first in the early 80s the smiths were their first big get they released the first smiths record and signed them to a contract effectively for the rest of their career you know one of those early contract things and then struggled as a, as a record label all through the 80s and so marcy was very fond of complaining about how they, they weren't able to support or promote the band or give them much. I think that's probably why they ended up with kind of a neighborhood friend at the helm of the production and ultimately doing a lot of this stuff themselves. So that's in that sense, it is kind of indie, but I agree it was uh, it's not as polished as it could be. So and they were contractually, you said contractually obligated to this, to this almost number of records. always failing uh, record label. Right. So they're they hit basically hitched their whatever it is course to the wrong wagon or something correct yeah so interestingly so then rough trade shortly after so they already kind of the band already kind of hated each other after they made this record but they were contractually obligated to make one more so they kind of easy breezy made one more and then broke up forever the label then folded shortly after that or filed for bankruptcy they later relaunched in the 90s and then had a ton of success they like released the first strokes ep they've like released stuff by arcade fire uh, my morning jacket stuff like that so you may have heard of them now, but they were kind of struggling at that time, and the Smiths were their only bread and butter. So that's part of the reason, but it's, yeah. It's evocative of that uh, Monty Python's contractually obligated second album, which I own. I think it's a fantastic name <laughs> for an album. <laughs> We've talked a lot about Marcy, but like you're saying Johnny Marr wrote all these songs as far as we know? Basically? Yeah, correct. He's listed as the writer of the music which I believe encompasses melody, but I'm, I've never been super clear on that. But yeah, the way their writing process would typically work was 
Johnny Marr would write everything and then he'd sort of hand it to Morrissey and Morrissey would dash off lyrics. Mm-hmm. I mean, I found this first song, like I found The Queen Is Dead to be a particularly striking song, harmonically. Like basically like when I was listening to it, it just felt like the key was changing all the time, uh, subtly. Maybe that was made more confusing by Marcy's <laughs> approach, we'll call Unique it. Unique appreciation of pitch. Yeah, yeah, the way he's like, you know, just kind of slipping around. I think, around, one, of, I think one of the things Johnny Marr does on this song and also maybe on some other parts of the record is it seems like he's, I think he's experimenting with different tunings on that acoustic guitar. So there might be some like, you know, mm, because there, it does feel like a weird collision of guitar, rhythm guitar on some of these these parts. And he kind of gets his little jagged edges in there. But I wonder if that's where that's coming from. Yeah, I also like I'm actually just looking at the song chart now and there is a minor chord in the song. So I would have guessed wrong. But upon listening to it, I thought like this is all major chords, uh, which, you know, just can sound really uh yeah, edgy, right? When a chord has six or seven different major chords with no minor chords of any kind to tie them together, right? So yeah, this this one really stood out to me uh, as 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 an odd precursor to like both Nirvana and Radiohead in that just uh, unique use, I'd say, of major chords. You know, like minor thirds apart and sixths apart. Uh, yeah, I just thought it was really. I, I hear some of that OK Computer in there too, in the guitar specifically, and that kind of controlled noise, heavy rhythm, mm-hmm. you know, less emphasis on on solo lines and things like that. Another interesting tidbit is that right after the Smiths broke up, Johnny Moore went and joined Talking Heads, but he plays guitar on Nothing But Flowers and a couple other songs on Naked. And I think if you listen to the guitar work on that and listen to some of the stuff you'll you'll definitely hear his kind of distinctive rhythm lead sort of style which is pretty interesting that's quite a different uh tonally different uh genre than uh you know you go from doing the smiths to doing like the most like almost like what big bandy sounding uh talking heads album another idiosyncratic singer that's probably kind of warbly yeah and by all accounts, kind of a nightmare to work with. <laughs> and yet, I love him. Uh, I do love him, too. I would, I would much rather work with Danny Burns. <laughs> yeah, it's, I don't think there's any comparison. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> uh, we should listen to a little bit of The Queen is Dead now. So I broke into the palace With a sponge and a rusty spanner She said, I know you and you cannot sing I said, that's nothing, you should hear me the other. We can go for a walk where it's quiet and dry and talk about precious things. But when you're tired, to your mother's apron, no one talks about Any other thoughts on this song before we move on? So I, I was reading and, and something that, that stuck out to me uh, were the drums on this track. I was reading that at the time, I think the most they had was like a one and a half second sampler. Uh, so he managed to capture a tom fill and then just basically looped that for the entire track. Because you can imagine a drummer just literally riding the toms for four and a half minutes or whatever it is. That It's actually a loop, which, mm. which was used very effectively as well. And he said, whenever you hear that cut out, 
it's not the drummer stopping. It was him just not looping for that, you know, portion of the song and then bringing it back up. So it was a cool, cool use of a looped uh, drum fill, essentially, through, throughout the course of the song. So I did appreciate that. Definitely did not pick it, up Yeah, that's that. cool. I didn't pick yeah. that up. I mean, I know what you're talking about, like the sort of like polyrhythm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I didn't pick that up as a loop. That's cool. Cool. So let's, uh, moving right along, let's go to the next song we agreed to chat about, which is I Know It's Over. It's already been brought up as simultaneously an example of Marcy's amazing singing performance and also his terrible singing performance. I'll throw it to the group. Any other any other comments on this? To me, this is a sort of a quintessential Morrissey song, like sort of whether you like it or not. There's one other song on here that I think is the most Smiths, the, the epitome of the Smiths. But this one really feels like what people who think they don't like Morrissey are expecting. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that's true. Uh, it was validated in my not liking it, Morrissey. I, I, I will say that um, the, the bass sound on this I, I think they did a really good capture of the bass sound but they might have almost done too good of a capture because you can hear yeah, a lot it feels of like string it's a noise. di yeah 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 a yeah. lot of string noise on there and um you know i i maybe it's just a uh that these types of tricks weren't commonly known back then but i feel like it's the kind of thing that it's certainly in the internet era there'd be like a million and one little things you could find out of, of ways to like reduce that kind of stuff but I can, it is very interesting context that you're telling me that they were just like underfunded the whole time because that definitely comes across. And that's why I was like, oh, how is this not their first album? It's their third album. Like they're an established band at this point. But yeah, underfunded makes sense with little things like that. That's the kind of thing that like we've talked before about you're, you're in a studio with a guy who just like knows his equipment and knows every, they're like the wizard. And they're just like, you need this to happen. We do this. And that makes such a huge difference from like the engineering and production standpoint. And very clearly that was not going on here. Yeah, agreed. I would say this one in particular, I like this song a lot. It's definitely a roll up your windows song, but I feel like this melody (laughs) runs through my head. And, but this one in particular, writing wise reminds me of a violent femme song. So this is really the one that kind of reminded me of that other record. I I found no evidence that these two bands knew about each other, influenced each other. Cause I don't, I'm not sure was it well we'll save that for another podcast whether the violent Thames record in 83 actually was a smash hit or not because i feel like it was still on the radio when we were in high school totally and blister in the sun was huge in 83 though um because it might have been one of those sleeper hits anyway point is it, it had a similar angsty vibe and i that's this is the thing that specifically brought me to thinking of that band as being kind of purposefully effeminate you know, challenging traditional conventions of how an arrangement should work. Violent Femmes arrangements also sound strange compared to other rock music. Uh, I agree. I like the Violent Femmes album better overall, but there's, they, they seem like they traffic in similar waters to me. Without getting too far off the topic, Rob, I also like this song. This was one of the, the ones that I wrote down. It's like, I thought this song was fabulous. This gave me almost like a, Oh, God, what's his name? I had it a second ago. You guys are blathering about <laughs> Chris Isaac. Chris Isaac. It almost gave me like a 80s British Chris Isaac vibe. Like, again, I know he's not like the sexy, you know, in-tune baritone that Adam needs. But, <laughs> you know, but, but there's something about it that, yeah, I just find very charming, for lack of a better word. I think he's withholding. So I commented earlier that there's a the end of this song is him withholding 
a note that you feel that you want to resolve the melody. But I think that's a good metaphor for how he approaches the whole thing. He's withholding as a performer. He's kind of putting it out there, but he's kind of drawing back. His singing style is also withholding. Like he's, I'm almost there, but I'm out of reach. I'm a, I am, you know, I have a nice build, but I'm also celibate. So hands off. It's, it fits with his whole thing. But to me, yes, this is a great example of why he's a good singer, not a bad singer. So it's really interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting. Cool. Let's listen to that part right now. that's done any other comments you ch- have we changed any hearts and minds yet <laughs> no well I, I i didn't talk much on that one because i just feel i'm just going to be repeating myself because yeah. there there's one or two extremely egregious offenses in this song that again it it kind of turned me off and i had a hard time you know it's not until i went back and looked at the lyrics and i was like oh like again uh, uh, uh phil like you were saying like if Chris Isaac had come in and sang this <laughs> on top of the, the same song, I probably would have fallen in love with it. So maybe that's a blockage for me yep. or I'm just awesome. Um, <laughs> you, but, just, you just need things to be in. I just need. I'm actually. But, but Yeah. No, go ahead, please. No, no, no. Bro, I'm actually curious to understand why I don't feel that way. Because, listen, we all play music. I care about things being in tune. I've been mm-hmm. that person in the studio when the engineer saying pitchy. Still pitchy, right, still pitchy, right. still pitchy, and you want to rip your hair out. But dude, I, it doesn't bother me at all. I'm not. I don't really even hear what the heck you're talking about, man. I just don't. That's interesting. You know yeah, what's funny? I, I, I literally, Rob, you just like opened up this world to me that I've never even thought of before. Of like you're in the studio and you're singing and the engineer's like you're pitching and you're like fuck you I don't care and how freeing would that be how amazing would that be that you're not doing and 47 takes done. to try to yeah. be like no I don't care yeah. I did three takes and I'm done you don't I'm know out. me sorry guys yeah I'm, that's a style <laughs> choice slander style choice slander and libel yeah <laughs> you're fired <laughs> right next it's like God, Jimmy Page great. not playing on the beat you know. <laughs> are we gonna try to work in a jimmy page diss on every podcast from here on out because i'm totally I, on board for that i think it's worthwhile i if, if if we can do that okay we should we should we've gotta over time we gotta assemble adam's anti-super group sounds so <laughs> british british anti-super group <laughs> It sounds like so far I got Morrissey on vocals, Jimmy Page. <laughs> Let's keep going. And but Rob, you bring up an interesting point about right art. The moment you say something is art, you can't argue with it, right? Like somebody th- throws a piece of mud on the wall, and you say, "Well, that looks like crap." Hey, it's art. And you go, "All right, well, somebody's going to think it's beautiful." Is there some aspect we all talk about, like pushing against the? you're put in a box and to be creative you find ways to push on the box or whatever are there laws and rules that must apply and and does it depend on the art form because i think about cooking right you could be an amazing cook and i read the menu and oh my god this looks amazing and the guy brings it out and goes oh well i only cook my chicken to 65 degrees is it a good meal still 
or if uh, on on the the menu is some wonderful ice cream, right? And they bring out the dessert, and it's boiling. And he says, "Oh, well, that's just my interpretation of ice cream, right?" Like I, I'm trying to find the uh, the corollary to music because it doesn't really work in visual arts and painting and stuff. But are there rules to music that must be adhered to before you go the Yoko Ono route, which is like, well, she's noise, but she's art. She calls herself a singer. I can't argue because she said it's art. I have a strong opinion. Go, let me hear it. Yeah, absolutely no. There are not rules. You, that is completely okay. antithetical to what art means. Now, that does not mean that I have to like it. I mean, it is definitely, right. I think art is totally in the eye of the beholder. So that's perfectly fine. Like that's, to me, that is entirely the point. To not, to A, not have rules to bound you and thus be as creative as you like or as terrible as you like or whatever. And B, to leave it up to the audience. That's what the audience does. That's their function. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, I would say that I have, yeah, I have rules for myself of what I like about art. I like to think that I keep myself relatively open to reexamining those rules and finding new mm -hmm. things that I like that I didn't previously like. Um, this was not one of them, but I do appreciate the fact that if everybody was following a sort of proscribed set of rules, you never would get revolutions in music. anything. Revolutions cool. in music right. are awesome. Right. Right. I, I, but I mean, not to harp on it, but I'm just, I guess I'm surprised that none of these complaints actually registered to me. It's not like I was overlooking them and saying, I'll forgive that. I just, it, other than him being a quirky singer, this doesn't strike me as odd in the catalog of all the other music. I've listened to, I, I don't know, have we talked about Neil Young yet? Neil Young's another warbly singer. Doesn't bother sure. me in the least, not even a little bit. He's great. Yeah, yeah, I, that's, that's a good, that's a good reference. Um, yeah, that is a good reference. I think Neil Young writes better songs, number one. Uh, I think a lot of it is the persona and the delivery. I don't like, I just don't like the persona. I don't like the delivery. Now, but that coupled with like, I don't like Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger seems like a douchebag to me, but I'm not going to say he's not a good front man. And I'm not going to say that he doesn't like put the appropriate singing to the songs. I don't even, I just don't think the singing is appropriate for these songs. And this song particularly, I know it's over. Am I supposed to read these lyrics as wry and like unserious? Cause it's just whiny teenager crap. Like it's really like my girlfriend broke up with me and I'm sad. That's that's the only thing that I can take from this. That's I don't like that's all of pop music though. Like I, right. yeah, I, I get all it. pop music. I get yeah. it. I, I wanted yeah. to. I just wanted to. I'm just trying to get to the bottom of like why it doesn't bother me. The thing that bothers Adam and and Tom specifically. Sure. You can certainly. It's fine to launch an argument that these songs aren't that great, or you know, various other things mm -hmm. like you just said. Yeah, that's totally subjective. I well, here's maybe maybe a path to finding out the answer to that. You mentioned this a couple of times, Adam. I know you're probably a lot like me. When I'm driving in the car and I'm singing along to a song, I'm never singing the main line. I'm always singing the harmony. I view singing as a group exercise. At its best, that has to work together with multiple things. And I think Morrissey is coming at this like almost like I am my own instrument and I don't have to be adhering to anything else that anybody else is doing. And I am sort of like, and that to me is antithetical to what I like and appreciate. Now that's music. interesting. If they, if he had released this album as not a spoken word, but as just him acapella, right? Okay. But you're right. The fact that it's, it's in this mix that has all these other uh, attributes to it. Yeah. That's, that, that's an interesting thought. And Rob to, to, to kind of thinking about, how I was introduced to music and why it 
feels like a drill in my ears when these things are not right on. My dad used to tune pianos as a side gig and I would go with him occasionally. And if you've ever listened to a a piano being tuned, it's three hours of somebody in your house going, and you can eventually hear the, and then, you know, you got it right. Then that, then that one of the three strings is on and he does that whole bunch. He also had an old school 1980s tuning machine that had the, the dials on it. And I would walk up to it and I would like sing a note and I would watch the the thing spin, 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 and eventually stop. And I'd be like, Oh, I just hit it. The, I hit the C. All right. What's next. So I feel like early, you know, early on, like seven to nine years old, like I was doing that and learning to sing harmonies with my dad. So I think maybe yeah. just foundationally that perfect pitch thing is like in my subconscious that, I have a hard time getting past it. I think those are two great possibility, possible answers to the question or, you know, varied answers to the question that I was really posing. I have no problem believing that Adam and Tom and Phil even, you know, that your ears are more tuned to what's in pitch than mine are. That's either super easy for me to accept. See, see Rob, like I would, I'd put myself at the opposite end of the scale. Like I, it didn't bother me at all. Marcy's voice doesn't bother me at all. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are times, especially towards the end of some of the songs where he's sort of going off, where he gets pretty weird, you know, but like maybe it's because I listened to more jazz. Uh, Maybe it's, I don't know, but it it doesn't bother me at all. In the same way that like bad chords don't bother me. It's just like, yeah, yeah, it's just, that's just the chord. I'm, I'm able to just not question the this, choice. For this whatever. isn't a person I necessarily want to tie to Marcy, so take it with a grain of salt. But another thing that occurs to me is that from a very young age, I was weaned on Bob Dylan. And then for the subsequent 20 years of my life, I would constantly hear people talk about how they couldn't get into Bob Dylan's amazing Nobel Prize winning songwriting because of his voice. And I always just thought that was a ridiculous proposal. So I, that's <laughs> sure. somewhere deep in there because my parents were huge Bob Dylan fans and that, that was kind of my baseline. I grew up listening to Fozzie Bear a lot, so you'd think that I'd be super into Morrissey. <laughs> He's funny too. All right, moving on. Big Mouth Strikes Again. This was the single. It, was, uh, it, it did fairly well, and I think it's kind of one of their, their signature songs. This is the one, yeah, so this is the one where I looked in and, you know, Marcy, or sorry, Mar, Johnny Marr is using those different tunings overlaid, but again, I think he kind of did that a few times. I know he did this other thing in there where he would use, like, amp feedback through a wah-wah pedal. It was very DIY, but he's trying to get a weird pastiche of, of like, rhythm guitar sounds. Uh, to me, I, I like Big Mouth Strikes Again. It's probably the first song I ever heard by the Smiths. I think it's Marcy acknowledging his own ridiculous persona or persecution complex like we talked about, that now I know how Joan of Arc felt. He's comparing, you know, people in the press complaining about how ridiculous he is or how fey he is with Joan of Arc being burnt at the stake. But he's doing it tongue in cheek. He knows it's insane. He is the big mouth in the song. I hope that's clear. And, you know, to me, it, it jumped out right away, even kind of the first few times I heard it when I when I didn't like it. It took a little getting into because it talks about murder. Just something about pop songs that referred to murder about smashing every tooth in your head or bludgeoning you in your bed, to me, just, just it kind of speaks to my weirdness factor of music. So this song has always been important to me in that sense. You put this song on a mix that you gave to me a long time ago, and uh, that was also my first introduction to The Smiths. And I like this song. I think that this is the song where 
the mixing is appropriate, the delivery is much tighter than in a lot of it's like it gets a little bit on the at the end, it gets a little swingy on that, but his delivery, generally speaking, is much tighter on this song. And so I, I I dig this song. I think this song is well constructed. I think it is funny. I think that this song I do read it as rye and it comes and it works. Um, I don't necessarily read a lot of the other songs that way, but I have no problem reading this as rye because it is such a clearly a ridiculous premise of like I'm gonna tell you meat is murder, but I'm gonna bash somebody's skull in when they're sleeping. This is my favorite track on the album, actually. So it's interesting, Rob, that this was the first one that hooked you. And this is the first one that stood out to me on this album as, as a very solid tune. Yeah. And it's a rocker and you could argue, and it's kind of short, like a single should be. So they don't overindulge in some of those things. Something about this, the, this song, and actually the one prior, Cemetery Gates, uh, it didn't really hit me upon first listen. Maybe Big Mouth did a little bit, not Cemetery Gates so much. It wasn't until I was sort of poking around on the, on the record later. I think they both actually remind me a lot of other songs. Big Mouth Strikes Again gives me an, uh, the beginning, just the first like intro, gives me big time heart crazy yes. on you yeah, I went and looked at it, yeah, yep. Yeah, so I was I was curious if you know that Hart, you know how close Hart was to that. Can't imagine the Smiths were influenced by Hart. Um, <laughs> I don't hear that. But then the other one, Cemetery Gates, is hilarious because if you go back and listen to it, it sounds like uh, "Only Want to Be with You" by Hootie and the Blowfish, <laughs> which I also just I can't imagine Hootie being into this. But if you listen to it, like it's there. It's right there in front Listen, of you. His name is Jarius Rucker. He's not Hootie. He's There's not no Hootie. Hootie. There's no Blowfish. That's just the name of the band. There's no Jethro Tull in that band either. <laughs> Look, you and Hootie and Steely Dan and Jethro Tull can all, you know, go do something. Together. All right. Sounds like we all agree it's <laughs> an finish. insane classic. I, I, guess we, I guess we should move this, this party along. So on to There is a Light that never goes out i'll start by saying i like the song a lot and i think it is the quintessential smith song it gets a couple pieces it, that i like about the smiths it gets it, it's it's organized like a single it has a chorus it has a layered melodies and it is about longing and it's romanticizing something dark, right? But I, I really love the melody line, uh, particularly in the chorus and particularly the kind of counter melody that comes in on the organ a couple times. To me, this is the Smiths. I, I believe it would be safe to say this has become one of their signature songs, you know, that, that people associate with them most uh, thoroughly, partially because of the kind of even more so than Big Mouth Strikes Again, which was a single. This is like the mood of the Smiths. That's what I'm trying to say. Thoughts, Adam. You was like this you on a movie over. soundtrack? I'm sure it was on many movie soundtracks. <laughs> I was going to say that uh, I thought that this was one verse away from a Weird Al song. 
which is the next verse he talks about like dysentery and then their eyes fall out and then a plague of locusts eats their bones and then he goes into like but it's lovely to die next to you or whatever uh so that was it but then i i was looking more uh about it and i felt bad that i went that to that spot because i've, I've read some stuff online that said uh that uh some people think think that this song is about uh, being gay and being in love with another na- man, but not knowing how to express it because everyone from the outside is telling you that you're wrong and all that stuff. So when I went back and listened to that, I actually kind of like it. So I, that's my, it, it, it's deep. If you, if you think about it from, from that aspect, it's pretty deep. That's my understanding of the song too. the line. Okay. I mean, it's my guess, right. But that, that, that fits what they're trying to get across the, in the darkened underpass, I thought, oh, God, my chance had come at last. But then a strange right. fear gripped me. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, to me, it is so. And by the way, I don't think it's an insult to call it a Weird Al song. <laughs> Maybe this is a little <laughs> digression, but I think Weird Al, I know what you're trying to say. But Weird Al is, A, respected by everyone here in the studio. And B, I think he takes his parody songs quite seriously. Yeah. Yes. Well, I, I think he takes his original song. I, there are many Weird Al originals that I love. And really I will, well I will right. really I will yep. go to bat for them against right. many, many very popular singles and say, no, this Weird Al original is better. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's John Bon Jovi, but there is a famous rocker in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame who's apparently been trying to organize a bit of a petition within the rock community to induct Weird Al. Unless he was inducted, unless that's an old story. I, I think I would, <laughs> would have known that. Okay, but to Adam's point, to, to Adam's interpretation of the song, and which is also mine, I think that probably tells you a lot about why it's been taken up as a sort of a quintessential, sort of a flagship song that means a lot to a lot of people, since clearly a lot of people have gone through that experience. This was a, you know, this was a different time. And yeah, I do think that's what they were singing about. Tom, thoughts? Um, you know, I don't hate this song. And I agree that this is like a good vehicle for what the Smiths are trying to get across. Um, I think that they, yeah, they achieved what they were trying to achieve on this song. Because I think Big Mouth Strikes Again is not very indicative of the Smiths' overall sound. You're right. This is indicative of the Smiths' overall sound. I think that the I don't have as many problems with the production on this one. Um, I don't particularly like what they're going for but it is fully realized in this song um yeah you know i didn't read up anything about the um uh the motivation behind writing it it did seem a little whiny to me but upon like the whole sort of like uh you know the the thing that initially stuck out to me was like you know I never, never want to go home because I haven't got one. And he's like, please don't drop me home because it's not my home. It's their home. And in my head, I'm like, yeah, you're 26 years old. It is your parents' home. That's actually their house. You should have your own place. <laughs> you but, have your own. Go get a job. Yes. Stop being drunk. No argument here. It's whiny. The whole thing is whiny. Martha's but I can life see is that. whiny. I can, I can see that from the standpoint of like, no, I'm saying a metaphor that like society, I don't have a home in society. So I'll give that to them if that's what he was trying to approach. I also had no context on the Marcy's questionable sexuality. Like, you know, I, I knew about the celibacy thing. And I guess, yeah, if I was if I had given it more thought, it would make sense that like that wasn't a society where he could just be like, oh, I'm super gay and I love it. And so let's do that. So if he was gay, it make more sense to just say like, well, I'm just not I'm just not screwing anybody right now. Right. 
Yeah. So I didn't examine it with any kind of depth, I guess, that, uh, you know, it, it is it comes across as less whiny if there is typical. something like that behind it. Yes, it is typical. I'm a cis, <laughs> cis white male. Well, film. can we just acknowledge that on top of whatever happened to be going on with Marcy's sexuality, he is just a weird person. I, I think yeah. that's undisputed. Yeah. He's a weirdo. He's a fame more. The other thing that I will say is that uh, they really do just repeat a line over and over and over and over again at the end of songs kind of a lot and that sort of when you when you hit that that's point a in the very song, fair yeah, that's you hit that point in the song and it's like okay now i'm just gonna hear this 14 more times because this is just what you guys do all right anyway that's not a huge critique but yeah i think but interestingly though they use the they use this song structure trope frequently and they use it here which is that the name of the song doesn't come up until the end and that's when they harp on it you know yes. like they, they do that a couple times right where they kind of they do have a chorus but they sort of withhold the name or the the tagline of the song and then they they drop it in the end but yeah i assume that's marcy's lyrical laziness i think that's fair well i, I also picture it as they could have just ended the song but he's like no i need to vamp like I need to have my voice out there vamping over this line again and again and giving it just very slightly different emotions on each time. And that's really what's going to make this song a, a classic. So theory, here's a theory. I could suffer through this record for the same reason I can suffer through a long fish jam, right? There's something about the tension and release that I, for whatever reason I find interesting, right? There's something about that buildup that I, I find interesting. Whereas other people, like, just give me give me the fucking real thing or give me nothing at all, right? Like, Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, Tension yeah. release is a big part of this. And I, you know, say what you will, we've already talked to death, Marcy's voice over this stuff, but I like that the band kind of loops. I like the underpinning musical aspect of some of these songs, even moving into the last song momentarily that they kind of have these droney loops to me that is a very interesting version of music that i could kind of i kind of get tranced out to and i like that so that that is a just i will just say that's appealing to me in other in other bands too take me anywhere don't care don't care don't care and in the dark and underpass i thought oh god my chances come at last then a strange fear gripped me and I just couldn't ask Take me out tonight. Cool, moving on to the last song on the record, Some Girls Are Bigger Than Others. I shan't speak first. Who wants to go? Adam? This song blows. It, it felt like a throwaway tune. I And I... And I I didn't go deeper into any lyrical meanings or anything like that. It just felt very oh, wait, hold on, hold on. You didn't go deeper into any <laughs> lyrical meanings? There's like four lines to this song, all right? Well, I don't know if maybe there's some other Smith references for their first you know, couple albums. I, whatever. But yeah, it just didn't do anything for me. Kind of a low note to, to, to end the album on. That's my... My two cents. You know, Adam, I, I definitely do agree with you on this one. It felt like a throwaway. I think a lot of albums can end on a throwaway, right? Like a sort of folky, underproduced song. Uh, Abbey Road ends that sure. way, right? Uh, and it's nice. 
this is not that. Right? This <laughs> is. Um, it's not, I mean, I don't find it to be terrible. Right. It's, it's um, not a bad ba- song. You know, yeah. It's really yeah, like this is just. A bad song. It's. I was just going to say it's painfully mediocre. I mean, it's just yeah. like, yeah, there's some chords, there's a drum, there's some ride yes. cymbal that comes in with 30 seconds left, which was about the only interesting thing that kind of caught my ear. I was like, oh, a change. I didn't read this specifically, but what it sounds like to me is a song that wasn't instrumental, and then Marcy put lyrics on it after the fact, you know? And there's not a lot going on in the instrumentation. Yeah, I'll, I'll just say I, I I like it, but I don't quite know why I like it. I mean, I sort of agree with your guys' criticisms, but I do like the instrumentation of it. And I think there's a terrible production choice slash mistake at the beginning that, that interrupts the groove of it. But I oh, like I like open. the groove of it. I like stuff in that vein. It reminds me of you guys. This might be a little bit of an obscure record, but do you know that Sun Kill Moon record? Yeah. Uh, Carry Me Ohio. It reminds me a little of that kind of loop where there's this like trancey guitar riff going around and around. Anyway. I was I'll, thinking a bit more of some of those like uh, clap your hands, say yeah songs from back in the day that were just kind of like, uh, you know, again, not a, not a ton going on and talk about another guy with a really quirky voice, yeah. um, you know, singing over quirky top of it. Quirky meaning pitchy, right? Quirky meaning... Uh, yeah, his voice is pitchy. His voice yeah, is extremely I, pitchy. But and I don't listen. I can't listen to a whole album worth of their stuff. I'll doesn't bother like me. But actually, that's a. I think that's a good touchstone. The other thing I wanted to slip in is that you know Johnny Moore in the two thousands joined Modest Mouse, and for like an album after it was this is after Float On or whatever. And but it, that made me think, and I don't think the record he made with them is particularly great, uh, versus like the earlier Modest Mouse stuff that I think we all enjoyed at least a bit. But I, it did occur to me that the guitar style on bands like Clap Your Hands, Say Yeah, Modest Mouse, what I personally had come to think of as that like early 2000s indie rock guitar style reminds me a lot of Johnny Marr's guitar style. You know what I mean? So I think they, I, I can almost guarantee you that those guys would say they were influenced by uh, his guitar playing. And that's ultimately why when he called said, can I join the band? I said, yeah, of course, please join the band. He called, he called them. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know yeah. how it went down. Okay. <laughs> that's I, I didn't know that you could just do that as like it's ballsy hey can i be in your band can i join your established Whoever? band i'm someone you've heard of <laughs> yeah i'd like to make a lot of money on a tour that sounds good <laughs> i noticed you're another lead singer with a weird affect yeah <laughs> and personal problems deep personal problems yeah there's i just feel like there's like nothing to this song really it, it just felt like a throwaway and uh, I know that Rob, you and I have a dispute about this, but I, I, I think the lyrics in this song are particularly terrible, and I think they're hilarious. Like, I don't listen. I can't really defend this one in the way that it's certainly not as good as "There Is a Light That Will Never Go Out." And, you know, just all objectively speaking, but I do like it. I like the groove of it. The record would be better if it ended with the previous song. I, I can't argue that point. But something about the line "Some girls are bigger than others," as throwaway as it is, just kind of just cracks me up it's not even a joke i don't know why i like it i just think it's funny some I girls like mothers are bigger order. than other girls mothers <laughs> yes That's, yeah it's it's i mean it honestly could be a fish song you know like it just randomly thrown together words they just like threw word threw darts at a dartboard that had some words on there and they were like okay we'll put it over a groove well, i would like, like the i don't line. know it's that random he likes calling women I chubby know, yeah. 
Listen, I would like the line if it wasn't for the fact that he says it so many times. Right. He just get he beats it to death. It's by the, the crux yeah. of the song, right? I it's get the it. entire it's, song. It's, it is a bit inconsequential, but I'm just saying, for whatever reason, it's kind of seeped into my consciousness. Mostly because of the I do like that kind of droney loop that they're doing as a band, or it's not quite a loop, but you know what I mean. Says to the dollars, there is but one concern. I have just discovered some girls are bigger than others. Some girls are bigger than others. Some girls' mothers are bigger cool. than Cool. Well, I think that's all the songs we wanted to talk about today. All that remains is for us to decide. Is it going on the list or is it not going on the list? The list being 1,001 albums you must hear before you die. So I will kick it to the group, Tomas. Listen, I hated this album. I did not like it at all. I found it to be um, borderline unlistenable. I also think that it does make the list because I can absolutely see how it spawned a bunch of other bands to create a sound that, and, and they, they weren't the originators of it. If we're going back farther, I'd probably give that to the Violent Femmes. To, to, but either way, they were clearly very influential. They, as you said, they could have, they, it could arguably be that they spawned indie rock generally and uh, that sort of lo-fi indie rock. Um, again, I didn't like the album, but I can see why this album had ripple effects through history. So I would say you probably have to listen to it so that you can appreciate better albums more. (laughs) All right. So, uh, Tom, after this discussion, I am grudgingly or begrudgingly, whatever it is, uh, I'm going to land on, on, on the same thing. So I did not like this album. I probably won't listen to it again. Uh, learning of the background, the history. Uh, yeah. Again, even just to, to listen to something so you can deter, listen to this one so you can determine if pitch matters to you, if, if, if it's okay. And I don't mean that like, I'm sorry, that sounded like a dick thing to say. No. <laughs> if, you, if good music matters to you, listen to this so you can find out if you're an idiot. I don't mean it like that. I mean, like, it's a good uh, litmus test just to see, like, what, you know, what you like, what you don't like, what's what's important, what's going to wind up on your playlist in 10 years and 15 years or right now. So, yeah, it's definitely not on my playlist. Um, I probably won't listen to many other Smiths albums either. But, yes, let's let's uh, let's, let's keep it on here and, and you can get in it yourself. Interesting. Yeah. You know, I am definitely going yes on this record. I came in pretty, I would say definitely glasses half empty on the Smiths, just based on my limited experience and mostly my knowledge of like Marcy's pop culture persona, uh, you know, which we've all stated is obnoxious, but I was just surprised by it. I was intrigued by the way the queen is dead. The first track kicked in, uh, as much as I disliked songs like, frankly, Mr. Shankly and Vicar and a Tutu, and there's probably another one that really stood out as, like, I particularly disliked. Even the ones I disliked, I found interesting. And I, 
honestly, I feel like it's the first record we've listened to where I felt like I'm going to listen to this again. Like there's something about it I, I don't understand yet and I need to listen to it more so I can understand what's going on here. Great. Wow. I'm a little surprised by the result, but I'm, I'm happy. It should be pretty clear to anyone who's been paying attention that it's a yes for me. I like the record. I will continue to listen to it and laugh about our conversation here. I think that, <laughs> and, and I agree with everything that was said previously, which is, you know, like it or hate it or love him or hate him. Morrissey is out there in the world. He's a known figure. He's influenced people. He's got a cult of devoted fans. So did the Smiths. Teenage angst is a marketable quantity. I have, I have plumbed the depths of the rest of the Smiths catalog. I don't really think there's a ton there, to be honest. I do think this is the best, just FYI. Uh, there's some other stuff, maybe some singles, but yeah, I think Marcy has his moments, and I think this spawned, if not a genre, it certainly just influenced a lot of people to be more smart-alecky in their writing, to be maybe a little bit more DIY or experimental in their approach to songwriting, and even their approach to their onstage personas. I, before we end, so it's a yes for me, that's a, that's a four to zero, it's going on the list. It is, has made our list of 1001 albums you must listen to before you die. Before we move on to next week, though, I did just want to, I pulled one quote about Marcy. There's a lot of terrible things that Marcy has done out there. I'm sure you can dig them up. He seems insufferable. Certainly don't want to hang out with him. But he does have his moments. In 1992, he, pla he blasted the entire genre of dance music, telling Details Magazine, it's the refuge for the mentally deficient. It's made by dull people for dull people. No. Marcy, you're an ass, but you have your moments. You're on the list, baby. Now, what are we looking at for next week, Tom? All right. We're going to pull out the Albinator 5000. We're going to crank that bad boy up, get it going. I am excited to move on to another album. Uh, let's uh, hope that it's uh, you know a deep dive into Morrissey's solo work is the next thing. All right. So, I'm busy next week, guys. Uh, <laughs> drum roll, please. Next week, we will be listening to uh, Devendra Bonhart's Rejoicing in the Hands. Hmm. I don't know if anybody else is familiar with this album. I don't know any of the words you just said. Okay. W what is it again? <laughs> yeah, I don't. The artist I certainly am not familiar Bonhart. with it. Devendra, Devendra Bonhart, Rejoicing okay. in the Hands. I I love I really like this album. I've seen him live, and he is a very unique guitar player. I just put it that way. One might say. Uh, yeah, but he doesn't detune his guitar. His guitar. Is completely out of tune. Yeah, he just, he's, my, yeah. My, I don't. I have. I've definitely listened to some of his music. So it's possible I've spun this one before, but I'm not super familiar with it. But my only picture of him is as a weird gypsy hippie, like wearing scarves and rags and shirtless. Oh, and, literally, yes. I, when guy. he played, uh, when I saw him, he had the huge long hair, the huge long beard, and he was in like one of those like not quite a dress dresses. Um, it, it like the patchouli stink that comes off of him is just <laughs> overpowering, and uh, I'm sure that he has not seen the inside of a shower in many many moons. But the man knows how to play guitar. I have a fun story about Devendra Bonhart. Uh, 
that I'll share. I'll I'll share next week. Well, you can look okay. forward to that. I was gonna say don't don't yeah. don't ruin the gold on this one. I'm I got a lot of. Oh yeah, of I mean stuff. this is like oh, this is this is some grade A stuff. I mean, Save this it. is in this is in the vault. That's our right? teaser. Put it in the vault. Take take some notes <laughs> and we'll get we'll get into it. Yeah, you, you yeah you might want to put that comment in the commercial for next week's <laughs> podcast. We're gonna be running that <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. National radio. Yeah, I think. it's gonna be on Monday okay. Night Football. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah, you want to. Mark that. I will mark, mark it. Yeah, let me timestamp this right now. Well, it was a lovely conversation with you all. It was great, great hearing from everybody and, and getting into this. I'm very excited for next week. I just want to say that uh, before we close things out on the Smiths, the Queen is dead. If you uh, did, we get it wrong. Did we get it right? Do you have more complaints? Do you want to talk some more crap? You can email us at a thousand and one album complaints at gmail let us know if your hate mail is articulate enough we might just read it on the air <laughs> oh yes and until we see you next time i have been rob i have been tom i'm adam and i'm phil boosh <laughs>